Возлюбленная Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста, и утвердим обетование, относящееся к предверию нашей надежды, да воцарится воскресение Христова в наших телах. Склоним наши головы в молитве. Дорогой Небесный Отец, во имя Иисуса Христа, мы благодарны имени Твоему Святому за вновь представленную привилегию быть на месте всем, которое очертила десница Твоя для поклонения Святому имени Твоему. И ныне позволь наследию Твоему во имя крови завета подняться на вершины для нас недосягаемые и сокрушить всякое бремя и запинающий нас грех. Да будут прокляты в этом служении, как и прежде, все дела дьявола, болезни, нищета, преждевременная смерть, демоническая зависимость, всевозможные страхи, депрессии, разрушение, костность, невежество, все это да отступит от шатров святого народа Твоего. И ныне встань, Господи, на место покоя Твоего Ты и ковчег, могущество Твоего, и да облекутся святые Твои спасением Твоим, и да возрадуются пред лицом Твоим. Дай нам больше от Духа Твоего, пропитай нас Духом Твоим святым, позволь нам найти светлое лицо Твое. Я представляю это служение в Твои божественные руки, веди его рукою превознесенную, великий Бог, Отец Сын Дух Святой. Аминь. Да благословит вас Господь, можете садиться.
Jesus. 
To begin our study, let's open Matthew chapter 5, verses 45 through 48, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's someone that would like to continue is called called to perfection. To fulfill this command, we have stopped to study the purpose of God's righteousness in the heart of a person. What purpose is the righteousness of God in our heart intended to fulfill? And specifically, we've been studying that the purpose of righteousness in the heart of man, accepted by him in the broken tablets of testimony and affirmed in the new tablets of his heart, give God the right for us to not be heirs of peace of the law like Abraham and his seed, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans chapter 4 verse 13. 
For the promise that he would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We must know that the righteousness of faith in our heart is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God, or our obedience to the gospel word spoken by the messenger of God. And so the promise of the peace of God is given only to those people who obey the order of God, cooperation with which he sends us his word through the mouth of the messengers of God. And therefore, the covenant of peace in the heart of a person is the result of the obedience of his faith to the faith of God. To test a person to determine if God has truly set him to represent the powers of his word should be done according to the order outlined in Scripture. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, first, whoever calls on the name to call means to prepare the heart to hearing, to hearing the word and to immediately fulfill it. This is what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Furthermore, continuing, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Here is an important point. Because today we have many people who have who are preaching without being sent by God. They are perhaps either chosen by God, or excuse me, they are perhaps chosen by people, sent by people who also themselves were not sent by God. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. As you can see, people whom God has sent are prophets of the Most High. These are not regular people. They are people who know the law very well, who have dedicated themselves to God, and who understand this revelation, who continually meditate upon the holiness of God. They don't do a single step left or right according to their own desire. They move in the direction of that road that God sends them on. They are led by the Holy Spirit and not by some kind of institutes who send people to places. Through righteousness of faith, the covenant of peace presented in the inheritance of peace is called to abide and serve as evidence in the heart of a person that he is the child of God. Therefore, the inheritance of peace that abides in the covenant of peace are in fact the riches of our hope in God that contain all the promises of God that yield the purpose of righteousness or the goals of righteousness. All the promises we are called to take according to the righteousness of our faith. Thus, it is righteousness through the peace of God contained in the covenant of peace that can keep our hearts and thoughts in Jesus Christ. This is one of the great magnificent promises so that we could be at peace. Take a look. Does a person have peace during stressful situation? Does he have peace in his spirit? The situation could be terrible, irreparable, without a way out. 
But if there is the rule of the peace of God in, the, in our hearts, you will feel this. You will feel that God is with you and the peace of God has not gone anywhere. Despite the fact that the body can shake from turmoil, but the peace and the spirit will keep you and firmly hold on to you, hold you on to this foundation. Therefore, the inheritance of peace or the peace of God can only guard those thoughts in Christ Jesus that are renewed by the spirit of our mind, which is the mind of Christ in our spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but they do not submit to the law of God and are incapable of doing so. And so, despite the desire of man, he cannot be found in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This is referring to internal life and peace that this world cannot give, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Pay attention here. Carnally minded. Carnal mindedness goes against God. A person goes to evangelize. He gives up his life. He does good. And then God at the very end says, Depart from me. I never knew you. Workers of iniquity. Why? Because God did not send him to do these works. God wanted to grow him so that he can bring fruit. And then a person who brings fruit can be sent. But he thinks that if he goes to evangelize and brings people to Christ, that they this is that same fruit, whereas fruit is an, a changed character, but he thinks that fruit is man, man whom he will bring to Christ. Sometimes he will say, what do I do? I'm dying and I have not yet offered fruit to the Lord. What do you mean? He says, I have not brought a single person to God. I remember as a child we had sang songs and the church always sang the song that I would love to bring at least one soul into the hands of God. This song was about bringing fruit to God, meaning bringing souls to God. But God says, what benefit is it? God wants man to be saved. He can, without us, bring souls to Christ. I had asked, Lord, what if we don't go anywhere? How are you going to bring them? He says to me, John didn't go anywhere, and I have brought, I had brought to him whole governments that were surrounding, and all the governments of Israel. And they all came, and they were all baptized by him, and he didn't have to go anywhere. And the Lord revealed to me, if you will understand this, then you are going to be like my lips, that I'm going to make it so that you don't have to go to them, they will come to you. As we have said, that the sun does not go after anyone. It calmly looks forward, and those who desire it come to it. Therefore, the church is a light. It is the sun that rules the day. And when the sun shines, people will see this light. Why do they go? They don't go in the church. Why do they go from door to door, as they say? They say there are people who come up to me. 
and say, do you have peace in your heart? They come to, to my door. They knock on my door and they say, do you have peace in your heart? And I tell them, yes, as a young child, I have studied scripture day and night. And I, I asked them back, do you understand what peace is? And they say, no. And I see that they don't understand. Why do they go door to door? Because because they try to they try to bring souls to God. They think that they are offering fruit by doing this. But it's written that this is the flesh, and these kind of people will not be able to please God. From this passage, we know that the people who do not allow the truth of the gospel word and the power of the Holy Spirit to renew their thinking with the spirit of their mind have no relation to the peace of God whatsoever. And consequently, they have no relation to the sons of peace who through the peace of God inherit eternal salvation in the kingdom of heaven. We must understand that through the cooperation of our hearts with our spirit and our thoughts that are found in Christ Jesus, we are called to reign the resurrection of Christ in our bodies and clothe our bodies into the resurrection of Christ at the door of our hope, at the door of rapture. Because this will be that condi those conditions and that evidence that we have pleased God. Therefore, those people who will clothe their bodies into the resurrection and whose bodies Christ will reign, they will be raptured. The rest will remain. However, to better understand the purpose that righteousness pursues in the realization of the inheritance of the peace of God and the conditions that highlight how our righteousness must be clothed in this peace to meet the requirements of the perfection of our Heavenly Father, we arrived at the need to study four classic questions. With what properties does Scripture endow the peace of God that is called to keep our minds in Christ Jesus? What powers does the peace of God have in relation to man with God and man with man? What conditions must we fulfill so that we are clothed in the peace of God that is called to keep our minds in God? And according to what things should we test ourselves to see if we are the sons of peace and therefore the sons of God? Because according to the reign of the peace of God in our heart, we must define in ourselves if we are the sons of God. As it is written, blessed are the peacemakers, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Peacemakers are those who can make peace, who can keep it in their hearts, and they will be called the sons of God. We've noted that if a person has not died to his nation, his household, and his corrupt desires, then the justification that he accepted in salvation through faith in Christ Jesus will never be transformed into the quality of righteousness in which he would be able to bring fruit of peace. Because these will be the true fruit of peace when death sin, decay, all forms of viruses, deaths, illnesses will be cast out from our bodies. Therefore, if a person will not fulfill these conditions, 
This kinds of people will lose the promise that gives them a right to be called sons of God. So they had it. They had this promise, but they didn't realize this promise. Revelation 3.11 warns, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. The peace of God. The peace of God that keeps us in Christ Jesus is our crown. We must remember that the promise of peace gains its powers and legitimacy only in our heart, only through righteousness of faith and the covenant of peace, which places a responsibility on both sides of the law, in which each side is responsible for the fulfillment of their role established by God in this covenant. And if one of the sides violates the agreement made in the covenant of peace between God and man, and this violation can only occur from man's position, then the second position in the face of God is freed from the responsibility of fulfilling the agreement of the covenant of peace. Therefore, the property of the peace of God in the heart of a person testifies that this person is a peacemaker or the son of peace, which serves for God as a foundation to endow us with the virtue of the name of his son, so that we could share with him the fulfillment of all that is written of him in the laws, prophets, and psalms. Because the justification we received through the right of our birth from the seed of the word of truth transformed into a quality of righteousness in which we became able to bring the fruit of peace in our relationship with God and those who surround us. As it is written, pursue peace with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. We've noted that we are referring to a kind of peace that can be created only in the boundaries of holiness or expressed in holiness, the limits of which are yielded by the commandments of God that contain the truth of God. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, writes that very same apostle, live peaceably with all men. Romans 12, 18. The peace that we demonstrate that is outside of the limits of holiness and is not an expression of holiness is lawlessness, for which we must pay the price of eternal life. We have no right to call those people who are to call people saints if they leave the service and they resist the holy commandment that they have previously accepted. And if they gather at some kind of assemblies and they choose people who would flatter their uncircumcised ears, they can call themselves so. But because they call themselves so, God will say, workers of iniquity, in order to be holy, it's necessary to humble your heart before a person, the person whom I have established over you, who represents my fatherhood. They are fathers for themselves. They say, I have my own head, I don't understand this this way, or I don't agree with this. I remember how at the beginning people would come up to me and they would ask, Pastor, today during the sermon, can you please not use the word sex out loud? because my parents are going to be here today and if they hear this word they're going to be they're going to be seduced and I had said strange 
His parents had had sex, they had gave birth to him, and they were going to be uncomfortable, rather. From what? In Scripture it says, here it directly says, and he entered her, or he knew her, and she gave, she conceived and gave birth. Let's then not read these words out of Scripture, because then we say, entered in, knew her, and so forth. You know that today's generation doesn't even understand this terminology. They need to translate this, they need this translated to them. It's not that this can't be spoken, this word can't be spoken aloud, although people are uncomfortable by this, but we must understand that our fellowship with people whom Scripture refers to as bad company will distort our good morals and transform us into their wicked image. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34 Therefore it is impossible under crime to have peace with the wicked who had accepted the truth at some point, but then left their assembly and turned away from the holy commandments. Because of the fact that they are resisting the words of the messengers of God established over them, testifies of the loss of peace in their heart, and it refers them to the category of the wicked. Isaiah 57, 20-21 This is not the only place of scripture. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20-21 In previous services, in a certain format, as far as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, our everyday study the first three questions. Therefore, let us continue to study the fourth question. According to what things should we test ourselves to see if we are the sons of peace and the sons of God who are called to share the inheritance with Christ that is contained in the laws, prophets, and psalms? Furthermore, we have noted that the limits of the boundaries of holiness in which peacemakers, like their Heavenly Father, practice peace are the limits of the commandments of the Lord in the format of the commanding teaching of Christ. The weapon with which the sons of peace practice peace in the limits of the commandments of the Lord is the righteousness of their faith. We have already studied six signs by which we must judge that we are the sons of peace and therefore the sons of God. We have stopped to, to study the seventh sign. This is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or the selective love of God. Colossians chapter 3 verses 14 through 15. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. That which man calls love can't be called the bond of perfection. Because human love, whether it be friendly, whether it be relative, whether it be between a man and a woman, this is a selfish love. Or a person 
does not thank for this. He thinks that he is owed this. He says, you are my friend, therefore you owe me. Therefore, he's not going to thank his, his friend if his friend even does something. If it's not enough for him, he's going to say, what do you want from me? You're my friend, so you owe me. Or you're my wife, you're my husband, you're my brother, you owe me. And we see that this kind of love is selfish. It's ignorant. But here it talks about love that is the bond of perfection. And therefore, according to this passage, the rule of the peace of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition, if we are clothed in the selective love of God, agape. On its own, the selective love of God is the incomprehensible to our mind goodness of God or the virtue inherent in God. For the selective love of God, which is the goodness of God, contains good, wonderful, eternal, and incomprehensible to our mind goals of God that are called to build unique and peace relationships between God and His children. Christ had given himself up for his church, not for the whole world. And the Heavenly Father had sent him to die, not for the whole world. But he had loved in this world those who are his own. This was an incorrect uh, translation, John 16, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And now... Pay attention. The next words are that are going to explain the first words. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but he have eternal life. It means that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Then all the rest. How could God love everyone if not everyone is saved? Because the translation was incorrect. God loved in this world those people who go to the light who repent in their sins. For, the, for God so loved his own, he will come to save those who are his own from their sins, not the whole world. The angel comes to Joseph in a dream in the night. When he thought that his wife had cheated, and then the angel came and said, Joseph, my son, son of David, don't be afraid to accept Marie, Mary, your wife, for he who is in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He is going to save his people from their sins. God, it's written, he loves those who love him, and he hates those who hate him. Therefore, when people read the first line, for God so loved the world, and then they don't read the the rest of the line, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That he, in this world, has loved people so that those people who are going to believe that they do not perish. This is very important for us to understand. Providing a purpose for the selective love of God shown in Christ Jesus that surpasses all our understanding and is contained beyond the comprehension of the abilities of our mind, Apostle Paul said that the achievement of gaining the love of God is called to fill us with all the fullness of the peace of God. 
understanding the love of God, we will become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But to achieve the selective love of God, it is necessary to be strengthened with might through the Holy Spirit in our inner man that by nature is akin to the nature of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, the letter of Apostle Paul, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, we're talking about the love of God, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We've noted that the phrase that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints is a condition to being clothed or acknowledging with their heart the selective love of God. This phrase points to the necessity of finding narrow gates in the face of the good wife, the image of which is the bride of the Lamb in the face of all saints who are part of the category of God's chosen remnants. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. To find a good thing and obtain favor from the Lord is to find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven in our field. If a person does not find these gates, he will never discover on his field the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. You remember that when he enters through these gates, he finds something. When you enter through these gates, you gain and you find the kingdom, the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. From the meaning of this parable, it follows that if a person does not find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven hidden in a field, he will not be able to use the grace of God in the face of a virtuous wife to realize his salvation. Therefore, the image of the field that contains the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is the image of our earthly body that is contained under the rule of the law of sin and death, but at the door of our hope contains a promise that is called to free it from the law of sin and death. And when he has discovered this in his body, he had discovered this promise that it belongs to his body. From joy he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can gain this field so that he can gain the promise that relates to the door of hope, so that Christ can reign in his body and clothe his body in resurrection, so the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus could free him from the law of sin and death in the body. This is a glorious moment when a person has understood what this is, and only then he is ready to sell all that he has. If he doesn't understand, he will never go and sell all that he has in order to gain it. And therefore, according to Scripture, finding a good wife is making a marital contract or a marital union with a specific congregation of saints that meet the requirements of being God's chosen remnant. The selective love of God 
as a true virtue that is obtained by a good wife is goodness that is grown from knowledge of God by hearing the gospel word of the kingdom of heaven inside of a person. And such a virtue or such a good thing grown from the seed of the word of God is defined by scripture as wisdom from above, moral perfection, the totality of perfection, or the bond of perfection, nobility, majesty, magnificence, greatness, and glory. However, to arrive at a more practical reality regarding the selective love of God, we will go deeper and deeper into the character and property of God's selective love in the light of the true virtue represented by the Holy Spirit in Scripture through the evangelized word of the apostles and prophets. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 through 8 Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, by Christ Jesus we are given great promises, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither bare nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it says that these properties, they are called to multiply. Upon the multiplication of these properties, the level of our dedication will be different. A true virtue expressed in the dignities and characteristics of the selective love of God is none other than the reigning crown of God's righteousness, standing guard of His incinerating holiness. And therefore, the virtue that we are called to demonstrate in our faith in the selective love of God is the holy love that comes from the goodness of God, in the dignity of which is defined by the great mystery of God hidden in the work of his redemption. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the letter of Apostle Paul. We began to study the selective love of God in the format of seven virtues that we must demonstrate in our faith to reign the resurrection of Christ in our earthly bodies and clothe our earthly bodies into the resurrection of Christ in the face of our new man. Because the dignities of the selective love of God do not go hand in hand with what man calls love. Because the dignities of the selective love of God are the characteristics of God himself, as well as all that comes from God. Because God is love. And this love that is inherent to God's goodness is defined by Scripture as the bond of all perfection. We have already talked about this text, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. So, be clothed, be clothed in these garments. We obviously can't be clothed in these garments on our old garments. In order for us to be clothed in these clothes, we need to take off our old clothes. 
You remember that in order for Jordan to part before Elisha and the power of God to come upon him double, it was necessary for him to be rid of his own garments. Yes, Elijah had thrown out to him his own tunic. But in order for this tunic to have power and he could be clothed in it, it's written that Elisha had torn off his clothes, his garments. He came up to Jordan. He took the tunic of Elijah from camel hair and he hit the river of Jordan. He said, where the God of Elijah is, he is. And the water had part, parted before him. Death had parted. It had ran. He had destroyed death in himself. When? How? When he took off these garments. When we take off the old man with his works, when we are renewed in the spirit of our mind, then we will have the right to be clothed in the selective love of God. The bond of perfection, the selective love of God in the seven virtues is unconditional. I'm asked a question. What is this unconditional nature in relation to what? It has conditions, though. The love of God does, right? When you gather the bond of all these perfections, then in relation to them, it is unconditional. In relation to these seven virtues, it is unconditional. It is not on its own unconditional that God gives it and there are no conditions that are asked of you. It is unconditional in relation to the dignities of virtue so that we can understand what this word means. Because if you incorrectly use the word in unconditional, then you can do anything you really want because people are going to say, I can sin, I can do whatever I want, the love of God is unconditional to me, it still loves me, it will save Satan and all the sinners, as I have heard, certain people understand, certain leaders of the Pentecostal uh, denominations, because they say, God is almighty, God is love. If he does not save the sinners, he is not love, because his love is unconditional. But here we mean that this unconditional nature is in, uh, in relation only to these seven virtues. It is unconditional in these virtues. And apart from the tolerant and selfish love of man, the unconditional selective love of God differs in that it carries the all-consuming zeal of God, His omnipotence, and His absolute wisdom that is impossible to use for selfish and ignorant reasons. You see what this unconditional nature brings people to? It relates to the qualities of God's love that is selective. It is unconditional because it is selective. Not because it doesn't place any conditions upon you, but it doesn't have conditions in relation to because it is holy. Whereas a tolerant love of man toward man can be easily used for selfish purposes. Songs of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. 
Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Such an unconditional selective love of God can be both accepted and transmitted, not otherwise than on the basis of absolute and judicious goodwill. And to better understand how we are called to demonstrate virtue in our faith expressed in the love of God, we will need to remind ourselves the origin and essence of the selective love of God, the purpose of unearthly love in our faith, the price for obtaining the unearthly love of God, agape, and the signs of demonstrating the selective love of God in our faith. Upon studying the first condition, what dignities does Scripture endow the vessel out of which flows the love of God, we arrived at the conclusion that first, the love of God is poured out and flows out of the virtue of the heavenly the Father himself expressed in his goodness. Second, the love of God flows from the person of Christ and the subject of his sacrifice for his church. Christ has loved his church. He gave himself up for her. Third, the love of God flows in our hearts in the face of the Holy Spirit, who creates an atmosphere for the love of God. The love of God flows in our hearts through hearing the word of God sent to us by God. The love of God flows in our hearts by seeing the world created by God. Creation. The love of God flows in our hearts by seeing, or the love of God flows in our hearts, or rather through fellowship with saints. And finally, seventh, the love of God flows in our hearts through the good soil of our heart. So, our good heart is also a guide to God's love. A heart that is not cleansed of dead works cannot be a guide to the love of God. It cannot be poured out through this kind of a heart. Studying the essence of the love of God that comes from the goodness of God, we arrived at the conclusion that the level of the love of God is defined by the level of the power of the hatred of God toward evil and those who practice evil. Because only by loving what God loves and hating what God hates do we express God's reaction to good and evil. And so, answering the question, who and what does God love, we define that the love of God, flowing out of the virtue of God by nature, first, loves to have mercy on the sinners that repent, loves the fatherless, widow, and stranger, loves his nation, loves the righteous, loves the gates of Zion, loves justice and judgment, loves a cheerful giver. By studying what, who and what does God love, we arrived at the conclusion that according to scripture, the love of God that flows out of the virtue of God by nature first hates those who hate the Lord, hates those who do evil deeds, hates robbery with violence, hates evil thoughts against our neighbor and false oaths, hates when the feast of the Lord are used for satisfying the flesh, hates the works of the Nicolaitans, hates worship to other gods. Furthermore, we have turned to study the selective love of God in the format and dignity of the knowledge of Christ. <laughs> Because the selective love of God flowing out of the goodness of God by nature is knowledgeable or containing wisdom. Apart from the tolerant love of man that is blind by nature and is led not by wisdom but by feelings, the selective love of God through its knowledge rules over our emotions, which points to the fact that apart from the tolerant love of man, 
It rules over our emotions. It's led by a sound mind controlling and leading our feelings by commanding them who and how we must love as well as who we must hate. And to show the love of God in our faith, it will be necessary for us to cooperate with God by using the mind of Christ that contains the virtue of knowledge. The Greek word from which the word knowledge is translated is the mind or the ability to reason. Furthermore, knowledge containing the selective love of God is supernatural, meaning the mind of Christ and not our earthly intellect. Love in which a person expresses his mind rather than expressing the mind of Christ has no relation to the selective love of God that flows out of the virtue of God. In Scripture, the knowledge of the love of God is expressed by all shades connected with the action of the mind of Christ in us. This is the knowledge of Christ in us, the understanding of Christ in us, the reasoning of Christ in us, being led or knowing that Christ is in us, acknowledging Christ in us, comprehension of Christ in us, and it's the judgment of Christ in us. All of these terms are found or find its expression in many places of Scripture. Out of these characteristics contained in the knowledgeable love of Christ that represent the fullness of the wisdom of God, we have already studied three components. The first component, the knowledgeable love of Christ in us, is intended to give us knowledge of what is good and what is evil, or what God views as good and evil. Elihu further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, give ear to me, you who have knowledge, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves, let us know among ourselves what is good. Job chapter 34, verses 1 through 4. In this component, the knowledgeable love of God in us is made dependent on hearing the word of God inspired or filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, the knowledgeable love of Christ in us is defined by the ability to bind us to the life of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. The knowledge of love of Christ in us is the life that carries eternal life, that is called to rule over our whole essence and separate the requests of the Spirit from the requests of the body. Third, the knowledge of the love of Christ in us is called to be expressed in the fear of the Lord that is tested by humility before God, which is expressed in not placing our mind equal to the mind of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 6 through 8, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, they shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Each time we, showing the love of God in our faith, rely on the abilities of our mind, we show the love of man under the label of God's love. Because the fleshly mind of man is located outside of the limits of inaccessible light in which the selective love of God agape abides and rules. 
Fourth, knowledgeable love of Christ in us is called to be expressed in the ability to not sign our creation with the name of God and to not sign our name on the creation of God. We place our mind equal to the mind of Christ when we attribute the name of God to our creation and on the opposite when we sign the creation of God with our name. So when we say, the Lord has said or the Lord has told me, we say our words as if they were the words of the Lord. Thus says the Holy Spirit. We give our opinion as the Holy Spirit. This often do this is often done by preachers in order to carry some kind of weight in the eyes of those whom they are speaking to. Because they feel their light, and therefore they cannot correctly act. They take and they speak their own words. Oftentimes, when talking to other people, I have arrived to this, that when I speak, and a sister, for example, comes to me, and she begins to complain against her husband. I say, based on what you have said, this will be so-and-so. She comes and she says to her husband, I spoke to pastor, and he said this and this, and she doesn't tell the truth. For the husband, it's important because he knows that she went to the appointment and she ends up lying. And when I ask her, why did you do this? She would say, he would have not understood me otherwise. You were an authority for him. He wouldn't, he wouldn't listen to me. He will only listen to you. That's why I said these words. And on the contrary, this also happens if the husband comes to speak to me and then comes home and tells the wife something completely different. I'm just bringing this as an example that people oftentimes do this by speaking their words as if they're from their Holy Spirit so that they can scare people. This is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. You see, we do it. If we must say, thus says the Lord. It has to be written in Scripture. I said, if a prophecy is not verified by Scripture, I don't accept this kind of prophecy. Therefore, if you, on the foundation of Scripture, speak, you do not vainly speak the name of the Lord. But if you distort the name of the Lord and you try to carry out some kind of doctrine with your own words, then you express the name of the Lord in vain. To use the Lord's name in vain means to unlawfully swear by the name of God or to unlawfully to ourselves the sworn promises of God that belong to the children of Abraham, or rather those who have the faith of Abraham. And the Lord said to me, the, Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 14, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. They, I have not sent them, commend them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. It's very important to be very careful because God hallows His name. Let us not speak something incorrectly or some kind of thought incorrectly. If you're not sure in the Word of God that you are correctly speaking it, just don't speak it out loud at all. Fifth, 
The knowledgeable love of Christ in us is called to be expressed in the powers and ability to protect us from evil. Proverbs chapter 2 verses 10 through 12. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil from the man who speaks perverse things so when the love of god when it is wise when it enters with its wisdom and this will be pleasant to you this wisdom will be pleasant to you then knowledge will understanding will keep you from these words that follow that if the mind of christ is a component of the love of christ is not placed in our heart we cannot have the love of god and consequently the ability to be protected from evil with the lack of the mind of christ it is impossible to discern good from evil and provide a definition for good and evil evil is any good work that comes from the flesh and is inspired by the flesh whereas good is unceasing obedience to the order of God that is contained in the commandments, statutes, and precepts of God. So any kind of virtue that comes from the flesh, or any kind of, excuse me, good deed that comes from the flesh is called evil. Six, the knowledgeable love of Christ in us is called to be expressed in the ability to know the will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. From these words, it follows that if the mind of Christ as a component of the love of Christ is not placed in our heart, we will not have the opportunity to know the will of God and grow in the love of God, because transformation in the image of God through our renewed mind means to grow in the love of God into a perfect man in the full measure of the stature of Christ. Because the full measure of the stature of Christ is none other than boldness expressed in the ability to meet our Lord as our groom with burning lampstands. And the condition for such boldness is called to be the realization of the promise that relates the door of our hope or the door of meeting the Lord in the clouds. Seventh. The knowledge contained in the love of Christ in our heart is called to be expressed in the ability to protect us from stumbling blocks. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down, and your sleep will be sweet. From these words it follows that if the mind of Christ as a component of the love of Christ is not placed in our heart, then we will not have the ability to receive eternal life for our soul to avoid stumbling. The result of stumbling is the lack of eternal life or rather the destructive effect of death. Now we will look at the essence of the love of God from the position of self-control contained in it, because aside from the love of man that cries, you can't forbid the heart, the love of God is self-controlled and can command the heart.
In Scripture, the self-controlled love of God contains the meanings that are tied to God's will in us. The Greek word self-control in relation to itself means self-composure, self-bridling, self-control, self-discipline, self-enslavement, the test itself, self-management. It is the presence of these meanings of the self-control expressed and rule over oneself that define the selective love of Christ in us. And such strong-willed domination manifests itself in piety, meekness, chastity, wisdom, and humility of oneself. In other words, demonstrating self-control that is contained in the selective love of Christ that abides in our heart is the liberation of Christ in us that is expressed in the voluntary ability to execute just judgments in relation to ourselves, and in this manner protect the sovereign rights of the Son of God in us from the encroachment of our carnal lusts, and for the self-control love of God to not remain simply a slogan for us that will provide a specific evidence from scripture that will show in what cases and how the love of Christ expresses itself in self-control. For self-control contained in the love of Christ in our heart is defined by our voluntary abilities directing or directed to the fulfilling of the commandments of the Lord. Practically all the commandments of the Lord pursue bridling the human essence and redirecting his will to fulfillment of the will of God. In these commandments, whereas all the blessings of God are the sworn promises of God, that is God's thanks to us for fulfilling his commandments. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. According to this definition, when fulfilling the commandments of the Lord, there occurs the unwrapping of the potential of the love of God that opens the doors to eternal life and multiplying our rule in the promised land, which we view as the reign of the resurrection of Christ in our body. And to strive to fulfill all the commandments, it is necessary for us to use strength contained in the self-controlled love of God. And if the knowledgeable love of God in us gives us knowledge of what God sees as good and evil, then the self-controlled love of God in us gives us the strength to choose what God views as good and deny or reject all that God views as evil. You see, these are different things. As it is written, curse and honey, this is referring to Christ in the flesh. When he will be born from Mary, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15. And this refers to all of the followers of Christ. Love that expresses its own will instead of the will of God has nothing in common with the selective love of God that is called to express the will of God because it has no right to be called love. And so the manifestation of the self-controlled love of God in us is the ability to rule over ourselves or to rule over our feelings that comes from the desires of our body. Also, if you remember, the old Russian word prince or rule means one who has charge over his horse. From this came the word prince, to take charge over your horse. In scripture, control or charge over a horse fairly often symbolically points to the 
bridling of our body. The body is viewed as a horse. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, bridle, else they will not come near you. Psalms chapter 32, verse 9. From this definition, it follows that the emotional sphere of the essence of our body can be bridled none other than through the harnessing of our tongue by means of bridle and bit. Because it is the tongue of our body that is the steering control of our bodily nature. As Apostle James writes, James chapter 3, verses 2-3, If anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. However, for this kind of bridling, we need someone who will bridle us by means of bridle and bit, because according to Scripture, we do not fit this kind of role. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by man mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. James chapter 3 verses 7 through 8. Have you paid attention here? We, despite all of our desire, can't tame our lips on our own. We need someone. We need a writer who, through the bits, will be able to direct, to bridle our tongue. The rider that is able to bridle our tongue and lead us as his glorified horse is the Holy Spirit, to whom we, through prayer, must provide the basis to bridle us. Take a look at how David had prayed. Psalms 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. You see, he understood that he can't protect his lips on his own. He said, Lord, placed a guard over my mouth. Basically, he asked that the Holy Spirit would protect his mouth. The guard of our mouth is comprised of brittle and bit. The bridle combined with the bit is what the Holy Spirit uses as a rider in the direction toward the goal, which is God. The bridle is used as a tool that directs the horse to the target. When you sit on a horse, these are the little ropes that are tied, the bridle, that you can direct the horse. If you turn one way, the horse turns one way. If you pull on two of them, they know that they have to go forward. But these bridles, they are tied to the bit, the bit that is found in their mouths. The bit excites nerve impulses and stimulates the horse to follow in this direction. If a horse, for any reason, opposes the rider, the rider pulling the bit deprives the horse of any opportunity to resist. When you pull the bit, the horse can't breathe in such a state. It comes, arrives to panic. It is scared. 
Therefore, you can't pull the bit too hard because your goal is to direct the horse, not to scare it. To better understand why the Holy Spirit used a bridle and bit for the bridling of our tongue, I will provide some references that are known to all horse riders. I think few of us know what a horse is, how to direct it, how to control it, and what its nature is. So here are some references. Control the trotter with the help of the bits that are put in the horse's mouth. The ears should exert pressure on the corners of the mouth, tongue and gums of the lower jaw in the toothless portion. With different pressures, the bit from a very soft, almost imperceptible to the strongest traumatizing oral cavity to the central nervous system of the horse, different impulses of different significance take place. Using strong, painful influences, a horse should not be pursued with pain to punish it and take scores with it. It should be remembered that deep disciplining on the nervous system of the horse does not have pain, but on the contrary, it leads to immediate cessation of the pain stimulus in response to a corresponding positive reaction from the horse. So, we must not just do pain, but to show that it must obey. And as soon as it does go in that direction, we must immediately let go of the bits and not so that the horse understands that we don't want to uh, bring them pain but to show them where to go so we're talking right now about how the Holy Spirit leads us sometimes it might seem to us that it's painful it's going to be even more painful until we understand where we must go. As soon as we have understood where to go, the pain will cease. The writer must take into account that a strong pain stimulus is a method of acute impact on the nervous system of a horse, and therefore, such a stimulus is dangerous. In some cases, it is useful and even necessary, in others categorically unacceptable. The mouth of a trotting horse should be sensitive to management. This is achieved by careful care of the mouth and the complex of openings that are part of the concept of working out the mouth and promotes its moistening. Moistening of the mouth is improved by tying sugar, bread, etc. to the middle of the bits. So God sometimes places promises that become desired to us. And for this promise, we are ready to obey, to follow. If the horse accepts the bit and chews them with pleasure, this is very good. During chewing, a nervous impulse is excited. Chewing means meditating upon the Word of God. And this impulse is transmitted to the chest and muscle and relaxes it. The most important factor is the matching of the bits to size and purpose. Another important factor is the choice of material for the preparation of bits. A mixture of iron or high-quality steel, so take a look, a mixture of copper and iron. We know that copper, or excuse me, iron is when we judge those who are found under our authority. 
And copper is one we judge ourselves. So a mix of copper and iron or high quality steel is the most effective or the most favorite for horses. With mixed bit between the materials, there is slight stress, several microvolts, which due to mild itching clearly stimulates increased salivation and chewing activity. Here is how or what Christ says about this. Matthew chapter 12 verses 34 to 37. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an, an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You will say, what relation does this place of scripture have towards bits? and to bridles, because God does not place bridles and bits to those people who are not his children. They are not led by the Holy Spirit, and they don't want to be led by the Holy Spirit. The children of God want to be led by the Holy Spirit. They search for the will of God, and God sees that they are searching, and he sees that they Sometimes people come up to me and say, Pastor, I don't know why I say this. There's no need for me to lie. There's absolutely no need. But I go ahead and lie. I lie again. And then I judge myself. So I don't want to do this. And I do it again. You see, when we have relaxed, then we begin to speak, we might lie again. You've probably noticed this before in yourselves. I had noticed this with myself. Do you remember when Apostle James had said, For all of us have sinned, what, in word? A person who has not sinned in word is a person who is perfect. Lord, well, how come then I don't remember? Because it says, You see, how can you speak good? For the Holy Spirit to work, we need to proclaim who we are for God in Christ Jesus, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, how he looks at us. We must call the inexistent as existent. When we begin to do this, and the Holy Spirit then has the opportunity to lead us, because he leads us through our lips, which we voluntarily give him in order for us we want this these bits and bridles for him to lead us and when this does happen then our lips become pure do you remember what happened with the prophet isaiah this was a prophet blessed by god however when he had met with the lord in a vision he came to horror when meeting with god when you draw near to god then all of a sudden certain things that you did not see before you begin to see he came to her and said woe to me i I am perishing i am living with people with unclean lips and i also have unclean lips here all of a sudden he has seen all that he has spoken every word and he said i have perished woe to me and in hebrew woe 
is it possible? It's like a broken cistern that cannot be mended. But when a person sees his inability to bridle himself, as we have said, this is the best kind of opportunity when people come and say, I say, I am happy for you. Finally, you see yourselves before you had seen others, but now you have truly seen yourselves. When you have seen yourselves, now you are close to being free. Now God can, can lead you and free you. Let us go on further. Self-control contained in the love of Christ in our heart is defined by the ability of our will to work together, together with the will of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. So let each one give as he proposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Practically, the self-controlled love of God that we are called to demonstrate in our faith gladly points to the fact that the love of God stands guard of its sovereign liberties and it acts honorably and with respect toward those people it comes across. So this person will not violate the boundaries of his neighbors. This freedom and respect to the sovereignty of a person from God's perspective we see right away on the first pages of the Holy Bible until the last page of the book of Revelation. Genesis 1.26 And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over all the earth. God is sovereign, and he wants to create man sovereign as well. But when a person and when a person is sovereign, now God does not have the right to interfere in his works to help him if he on his own does not want this. He must want this. He must ask God on his conditions. This is what sovereignty is all about. Furthermore, Revelation chapter 22, verses 17 and 21. Take a look then in the last chapter, we see the same thought. And the spirit of the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. You see, this is an offering to come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You see, those who desire, if you desire, only then he will be able to lead you. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And this is how the book of Revelation ends and as we have seen begins book of Genesis. The liberty that the love of God has thanks to the self-control contained in us is expressed in building walls around us that can help control us or rather remain in the freedom that is given to us by Christ to remain in freedom that Christ has given us. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. A wall in scripture signifies the protection of the Almighty that is defined by our relationship to the delegated authority of God. How we build our relationship with people who are granted authority will depend on how strong we build our walls or if our walls will have a hole in them. According to scripture, God receives the basis for our protection. When we demonstrate obedience to his delegated authority, and of course, Satan knows this unshakable law because all of his energy is directed so that a person, as much as possible, remains blind to this law, whether or not he knew it at the level of slogan and did not know how and what boundaries to demonstrate this obedience.
Submission to the delegated authority of God must be strictly contained in the boundaries established in Scripture. And if a person demonstrated obedience toward the delegated authority of God outside of the boundaries established in Scripture, then such a person resists God and cooperates with devil instead. And then the protection viewed as a wall develops a hole through which a person is again subject to attacks by the organized powers of darkness. This is what the prophet Ezekiel said about this. Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 4 through 5. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. As you can see, a wall points not to a prayer, but to the relationship toward a person whom God placed over us. You do not stand as a wall. You do not protect a person with a wall. You are called to be his protection, but you don't do this. Because our prayer gives God the foundation to protect us when we are under his refuge. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 30-31. This doesn't mean that these people were not there. This means that they did not acknowledge these people. When Jesus spoke to the Jews who believed in him, in your know the truth and the truth shall make you free john 8 32 he did not refer to abstract truth but personified truth in the face of himself this is seen well in his words therefore if the son makes you free you shall be free indeed you see, it is the Son who can make you free. Only then you will truly be free. Therefore, a word without a person does not work. According to this meaning, to use the freedom as the subject of the refuge of the Almighty, a person must want this freedom and accept it under the conditions of God through obedience to the words of the person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. As it is written, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Psalms 91 verse 1 He who dwells in the secret place in Hebrew means chooses a place in God, hides in God, stays in God, is rooted in God, builds himself in God, expanding in God, he who pleases God. Amen. Let us bend our knees, bow our heads, and let us pray. And all of those who desire to challenge their fear, sin, every dependence, every illness. We wait for you at this place because the Holy Spirit desires, He passionately desires to free us from all dependence and to reign in our bodies. Amen. May the Lord bless us, the Holy Spirit, on this place. I will pray along with you with your prayer and I ask you to deeply believe that God loves you. He is for you. He did not just say these words in order to scare you or to bring you to sorrow. He wants to heal you, to free you from dependence on sin and fear. He wants to reign in your bodies and clothe your bodies in the resurrection of Christ. He wants to deliver you from the fear of 
illness, fear of need, your eyes closed, your hands raised to the heavens, a sign that you're ready to receive from God that which He desires to give you. And so pray along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you with a wound in my heart, with broken feelings, dependent on sin, dependent on shame and fear, dependent on illness. I ask you, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, heal me, cover my shame, free me from the authority of the enemy, protect my lips, become my rider, I open my heart, enter it, and be my king and my Lord. And right now, before heaven and hell, I want to proclaim that according to your word, I am washed, I am cleansed, I am healed, I am restored, I am re justified, I am saved. Amen. Amen. Your sins are forgiven you and your transgressions in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May He come down upon you with His holy countenance and have peace on you. May He give you peace. May around you fall thousands and tens of thousands and not draw near you. May all of this come upon you and upon your descendants and may be fulfilled upon you. And let the nation say, Amen. While this blessing is being uh, proclaimed, you must remain here. Do not leave. We already talked about this. And now, let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.